come this morning to the end of Romans chapter 11. We'll pick up at verse 33 and finish the chapter. May I remind you as we're turning to it that Paul began this section of his letter to the Romans with grief and sadness. The wide unbelief among the Jews, his own brothers and sisters after the flesh, were, was breaking his heart. For three chapters now, he's been dealing with this very question, asking some very poignant questions, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, supplying the answers. But having started this manly struggle of one of the brightest, if not the brightest mind in world history with sadness and grief, he ends now with joy and awe in the great God whom he serves and under whom he needn't have all the answers. If only a glimpse of the greatness of the power and the wisdom of God the Almighty he may. To Romans chapter 11, verse 33, but first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, we recognize more sometimes than others how weak we are and how Far short we fall, even of grasping the very word that you have revealed to us. This is one of those times, our Father, when we're reminded of it. But we pray nonetheless, our Father, that you will take weak minds and flawed vessels such as we are and and pour into them things that without your spirit we could never hold and that will pour over the rims of our hearts. Father, fill us with awe and gladness, reverence and joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All scripture teaches Dr. Brian Chapel, president of our own Covenant Theological Seminary, all scripture has a fallen condition focus. What he means is that all scripture addresses particular concerns that we suffer because we are a fallen people since the fall of the world into sin with Adam. Different passages, of course, address various conditions such as anxiety or foolishness or pride or selfishness and so on, or they may On the other hand, on a more positive note, address us in ways to help us better to obey and to serve, to love. In other words, to reflect more and more the image of Christ in ourselves. The verses we've just read are no exception. There is some fallen condition. Specifically, there is something terribly lacking in our lives as 21st century Christians that this text is meant to fill. What is it? 
Well, A.W. Tozer, that faithful Christian and Missionary Alliance pastor of the 20th century, laid his finger right on the specific fallen condition under which we suffer today, over half a century later, particularly in our American evangelical churches. He wrote with stinging accuracy these indicting words. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping man. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little. Without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. This low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We've lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. This loss of the concept of majesty has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the churches are more prosperous than at any time within the past several hundred years. But the most alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external and our losses wholly internal. And since it is the quality of our religion that is affected by internal conditions, it may be that our supposed gains are but losses spread over a wider field. I will tell you, I see some ways in which things have gotten worse in American churches since Tozer wrote those words. But I am also encouraged by some pockets of reform, at least with regard to the corporate worship of God's people in the sanctuary in the matter of awe before the majesty of God in his sanctuary. There seems to be a backlash going on today, a backlash to the church growth seeker-oriented entertainment as worship approach that has so thoroughly infected our churches today. Where this response is taking place, you might be interested to hear, is among younger Christians who are sick and tired of being entertained in worship services that are not so subtly centered on them. 
and who desire instead to return to a worship in which they meet truly and genuinely meet with the Almighty God in His sanctuary, the transcendent, imminent God in worship, in reverential fear and with joyful awe that the Bible describes and those who find themselves truly in the presence of their creator and their redeemer and the sustainer of all things. But it's not only in worship, in the corporate worship of God's people at his house, that we must recover this sense of awe and majesty and reverence and trembling joy as the psalmist describes it. It is in our minds and in our hearts and our daily living that we must find ourselves in the place where Paul is here and the text before us. But how? Simply this. By the careful contemplation of the triune God by meditating on him who has revealed himself to us in the scripture, by meditating on him, praying to him, hearing from him in his word, by meeting with him regularly in his house of worship, and by doing those things to be moved by his spirit, as the apostle is here deeply moved and affected by thoughts of your great, and in the truest sense of the word, your Awesome, awesome God. Over a, uh, over a century ago, uh, another minister, this one a very young minister by the name of Charles Spurgeon, called upon his congregation to do just that. The highest science he preached to them the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. Go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea, be lost in his immensity. That is exactly what Paul does here, having surveyed the workings of God in salvation, not only for the past three chapters, but in this entire letter. Paul breaks now into doxology, into praise to God, having plunged himself and us as well, with him into God, the Godhead's deepest sea. He erupts again to the surface in rapturous praise. And we join him this morning in God's house. And how can we not? I mean, having considered the love and the mercy and the grace of God, yet having barely marked the depth of those things like a diver who swims only 100 feet down into an ocean 30,000 feet deep. Or a man who flies his kite to the end of the string and still finds himself 94 million miles short of the sun. So following 
this gigantic and spirit-filled intellect of the apostle, we have just barely scratched the surface of the depths and of the heights of the wisdom and the power of God. And yet, having gone even just that far, there is only one fitting response. Praise. Adoration. Worship. True theology, the study of God does that, you know. True theology becomes doxology. Praise to God, yielding glory to him. Paul gives us in this particular doxology several reasons for ascribing glory and praise to God. We'll consider them just under three points. First, we must give glory to God for his mind. That is, for the wisdom and the knowledge and the thoughts of the mind of God. The psalmist did the same thing, you remember? You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Or, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Or again, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Who but God? Who but God could have thought through and created such a scheme by which we are saved through the substitute of himself on the cross for us? What but divine genius could arrive at this? What mind but the divine could display such a wisdom as to make provision for the salvation of man? And even further back behind that, what mind could have designed creation as he did? I mean, every day, it seems, we're discovering something new, something else in creation and learning more of the intricate workings and designs of God down to those things that are invisible to the naked eye. We've come now to study the microscopic DNA. But what next? How much further will we go? And even those things we think we know, we really do not. How exactly does DNA work? Where does it come from? God knows the answer to those questions, all of them, and a raft of others that we haven't even thought to ask. Because it's he who designed it all, in whose mind these things existed before Anything existed. Philosophers and, yes, theologians must ultimately stand baffled by the mind and the thoughts of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Why? Why unsearchable? Why inscrutable? That is beyond our understanding. Because of their depth. Because the mind of God is first infinite. Our brightest, our best minds in all of human history, the the minds that make the rest of us look like earthworms by comparison, must nonetheless come slamming up 
against the impenetrable wall of finitude. We are finite in our thoughts. God's thoughts are infinite. There are no boundaries whatsoever for the mind of God. There are no impenetrable walls. The psalmist, even using poetic language, could not possibly exaggerate when he called the thoughts of God vast and deep and without number. He, God, knows all, absolutely everything is known to him in all of this vast universe and beyond. And all at once, at one time, if we may even speak in those terms. I've not seen it myself, but I understand that there is an IMAX movie about the universe that takes the viewer from the infinitesimally small vastness of the interior of an atom to the overwhelming distances of outer space. At one point I read the camera ascends from the square of St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice until the entire city can be seen, and then all of Italy, and then all of Europe, and then the entirety of the world, and then it backs up beyond the moon, and then the planets, and then the solar system, and then the Milky Way galaxy, in which, and even this is beyond us to even begin to grasp, in which there are 100 million suns just like ours. The nearest of those other stars in our galaxy so far away that it would take 100,000 years at the speed of today's spacecraft to reach the nearest one. And then the untold millions upon millions of other galaxies many so vastly larger than our own as to bigger the imagination. And then the camera takes the viewer back down into a drop of water and into a single cell in that drop of water and to its nucleus and then down, down, down to that astonishing, breathtaking universe within the atom. That, dear flock, is truly astounding. What is even more astounding is that it was created by God. At one time, none of it existed, none of it, except in the mind of God. Even today, God is mindful as, as mindful of those 100 million suns in our galaxy as he is of the one that warms your face this morning. Not only that, but he knows and understands the relationships, the interrelationships between these things, between every one of these things, from the molecules to Mars. Yet even these things are but the things that we can detect from this little rock on which we live called Earth. We are like little children playing in the backyard who think We've seen everything. Truly, his knowledge, his wisdom are infinite. 
His mind is also second, inscrutable. That is, we cannot understand his mind, his mind, his thoughts. And John Murray is helpful to remind us that here that Paul is not limiting himself to the things God has not revealed to us. The vast, innumerable thoughts that have not been conveyed to our little minds from the mind of God, but the thoughts that he has revealed to us that have nevertheless remained beyond us to understand. We came up against a couple of them just in the last couple of chapters in Romans. The 100% sovereign God of unconditional election, who chooses whom he will save for no other reason but his own mercy. And yet the 100% responsibility of every man to believe and trust in him or else suffer the consequences for rejecting him. Even what God has told us we can't understand. We can hardly grasp what we know, let alone what we don't. So we must give glory to God for his mind, his thoughts that are infinite, his thoughts that are inscrutable. Second, we must give glory to God for his self-sufficiency. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? In other words, God needs nothing. He is dependent on no one. God is self-sufficient. As he revealed himself to Moses, and we considered just a couple of Lord's Day evenings ago, I am. I am that I am. Period. He exists happily and fully in and of himself. As Paul told the Athenians, God does not live in temples made by hands. Combining the points we've considered thus far this morning, the psalmist is God's mouthpiece, writes this, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For all the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? God doesn't need anything. And he doesn't need us. Do not fall, brothers and sisters, into a way of thinking or speaking that I fear has become too prevalent among Christians today that puts God in need of us. He needs nothing. He doesn't need us on earth. He doesn't need us in heaven. He doesn't even need our worship. Well, the Bible says that God is seeking worshipers, but it's not so much because he needs them as that we need him. If we all became atheists, Tomorrow, God would be no more deprived of glory than the sun would be deprived of light if we became blind. God commands us to carry the gospel to the world. 
but he doesn't need us to do it or anything else for that matter. God doesn't need our company. God has perfect company, perfect fellowship within himself between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, on the other hand, we need everything. Without oxygen, we would die like gasping fish on the beach. Without water, we'd shrivel up to dust. Without food, we fail. Without fellowship, we go mad. Without God, we cease to exist. What have we, says the apostle, that we have not received? But God, God needs nothing and no one. He's fully sufficient in and of himself. Thou wast, O God, and thou wast blessed before the world begun. Thine eternity possessed before time's glass did run. Thou needest none thy praise to sing, as if thy joy could fade. Couldst thou have needed anything, thou couldst have nothing made. And for that, dear flock, God is worthy of our praise and of our adoration and of all glory. Finally, third, we must give glory to God for his preeminence. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. From him are all things. In other words, as John has it, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. No matter where you look, no matter where, up, down, inside, outside, through, under, everything is from him. The eyes with which you perceive these things, they're from him. The ears with which you hear them, the hands with which you touch them, those came from him too. Through him are all things. In other words, it's only because of his sovereign power that anything continues today to exist. It is he who keeps the universe from flying apart at the seams, our bodies from instant disintegration, the atoms that stick together to form your kitchen table, or the chair on which you're sitting right now. God's hand. We speak sometimes of forces like the attraction between negative and positive poles and gravity and those sort of things, and there's nothing wrong with that sort of language. But behind every force, behind every reaction, behind all things and all people, in fact, there is the hand of God actively moving, maintaining, preserving, governing all his creation, all his creatures, and all their actions, everything. From him are all things, through him are all things, and to him are all things. That is, all things exist. Everything, everything exists. Those hundred million suns in our galaxy, and the galaxies upon galaxies, it all exists for one single Hang every philosophy that fumbles around in the darkness, blindfolded by unbelief, seeking the meaning of all things. They will never, ever find it. Only in the biblical world and life view is it found. All things and all people exist and function for one purpose and one purpose only, to glorify God. That is it. From the sidewinding serpent off in the remote desert to the NASA space program,
from pulpit to pew, from the smallest molecule in the deepest ocean, 36,000 feet down under the water. Every speck exists for one single purpose, to glorify God. And they do, and they will. And men will. In heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, even in the depths of hell, God is glorified now and forever. The only question then for you is this. How will you glorify him? Will it be through willing praise under the banner of God? Or through groaning under your own? Either way, he will be glorified. How much more than how everlasting better it will be for you, my friend, if happily and willingly you render yourself to his glory today for his mind inscrutable and infinite, for his self-sufficiency and for his preeminence and for a thousand other reasons just like them supplied to us in God's holy word. Make this your passion, my friends, like Paul. To lose yourself in the immensity of God. And then to burst to the surface and cry with total abandon. To God be the glory now and forevermore. Amen. And amen.